Thanks for joining us today for the Post-Traumatic Faith Podcast, a place where trauma, hardship, and challenge meet faith and hope for the future. Here is your host, Jill Riley. Welcome to Post-Traumatic Faith. Season 3 has arrived. I am so excited to share with you this season new guests, new topics, and some great conversations. So tune in every week on Fridays. We will have a new episode. Also this season, we will celebrate our 100th episode. So stay tuned for that. Just happens to fall on my birthday, October 28th. So we will have a big celebration. Thank you so much for joining us. And here's today's guest. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and today I am joined with uh, Jim Riley. So Jim Riley and Jill Riley today. How's that? <laughs> and, and we must be long lost cousins because they're spelled the same way. Yes, and we look alike. Yes, except you're a lot prettier. <laughs> Thank you. Let me tell you a little bit about, about Jim in just a minute here. Let me pull it up here. Jim Riley was born on the banks of the Cane River in Natchitoches. Okay, you're going to have to say that one for me. Okay, Louisiana, the heart of the Southern Cotton Patch. Growing up in this rural setting developed the love and passion he has for the outdoors and for the wildlife he hunted. After graduation from Louisiana State University with a degree in industrial engineering, Jim worked in the oil field for more than 20 years. Now he is happy at home with his wife. What is your wife's name? Linda. Linda, how long have you been together? We have been married for 44 years this year. Congratulations. Uh, that's that's well, amazing. That's I ever made. I haven't made many of them, but that was a good one. <laughs> Very good. So tell me a little bit about um about where you're at in Louisiana. I'm interested when you say you're in the middle of the of the cotton there. Well, I'm actually down in South Louisiana now. I was born up in North Louisiana and it's almost like two different states. The uh, North Louisiana is all hills and, and, and rolling and lots of cotton patches and lots of cornfields. South Louisiana is more swamp area, uh, lowlands, and I'm right outside of Baton Rouge, the capital of Louisiana, uh, a little bit to the northeast of Baton Rouge. What do you love about Louisiana? Well, it's called Sportsman's Paradise. Uh, ah. What it goes with. and. You can go three miles in any direction, find wilderness, you can find lakes, you can find rivers, creeks, uh, swamp land, hills. It has a little bit of everything. It has a diverse ecosystem that supports a variety of wildlife and then fisheries. Uh, we have, as you know, in South Louisiana, we love crawfish and we love oysters and they're plentiful down here. We're in the middle of crawfish season. I had some boiled crawfish last Saturday, and they were absolutely delicious. Nice. Well, you know, when you say sportsman's paradise, I come from Montana, and there would be some that would take issue with that. They would, <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, this is this a is little different terrain than Montana. A little different terrain, little indeed. Different terrain. Yeah, New Orleans is actually thirteen feet below sea level. I don't oh, think okay. any places in uh, Montana below sea level. 
Nope. Nope. I don't think, well, you know, it'd be interesting to ask my pilot husband, but I, I don't think there's any place that's even at sea level. So. No, you guys are <laughs> up there. You're yep. in the atmosphere. Yep, definitely. Well, tell me a little bit about um, growing up in Louisiana. What was your family like? Well, I came from a traditional family. We weren't rich in the way the world measures richness, but we were rich. Uh, we had a few acres along the Cane River, and I could get my cane pole and a can of worms and go down on the banks and enjoy the day. And there's, you know, there's nothing better than that. Growing up in the country, being around farm animals, we had cows and goats and pigs and chickens and everything else that you find on a farm. Had a horse when I was growing up and learned to ride a horse and uh, Big Red was his name and I miss Big Red. <laughs> what kind of a horse was he? Uh, he was just a uh, Heinz 57 horse. Oh, okay. He from a lot of different breeds, but uh, he was good to me. Well, good, good, good. So how did you get involved in the oil field? Right out of college, I uh, interviewed with a lot of different companies. Mobile Oil interviewed me and asked me to go in their procurement section as an engineer. They were trying a new uh, project or a, a new way of doing things in their procurement to get people a little more technically versed in their procurement program. And I went down to Morgan City, Louisiana, which is, at the time, it had a Burger King, but didn't have a McDonald's. So that's, that's, how, <laughs> that's how small it was. Uh, but it was the jumping off place for the Gulf of Mexico at the time. Uh, since most of the oil field has moved to Port Bouchon, a little, bit, a little bit to the east of Morgan City, but at the time, it was the hub of oil field activity. I started out in the um, materials department, and we basically took care of our production and offshore platforms, making sure they had the materials they needed to keep running. And I ended up getting promoted and moved uh, several times, became the manager of the offshore procurement in New Orleans, and we spent a little over a billion dollars in the Gulf of Mexico my last few years there. Wow. So have you been on one of those offshore rigs? Oh, yeah. I've been on several rigs and platforms, and uh, it's an experience like none other. I, I'm so fascinated. I watched a documentary on those things, and I'm just so fascinated with all the big machinery, and it's just kind of overwhelming for those of us who don't know anything about it. <laughs> well, they're, they're basically uh, small refineries on four legs in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. On the production platform, they have the separators and the heaters and uh, everything else known to man over there. And when you get on the drilling rig, you have the Christmas trees and the blowout preventers and all that other equipment. And it's just amazing how efficient they have become over the years. Uh, and able to drill holes and get them producing and uh, get them into the pipelines that kind of look like a spider web under the Gulf of Mexico to get them to the main pipeline that'll end up getting to the refineries over in Texas or in South Louisiana. 
That's amazing. It, I I just am stunned by those by those rigs. So, what did you when did you leave the um, the oil field? I left the oil field in two thousand when uh, Exxon bought Mobile. They offered me a golden parachute. I took it and jumped out of the plane and uh, went into finance at the time. Okay. Not to be a great decision, but eh, eh, I did what I had to do or thought I thought I should do. So, and, were you doing oil field finance or sep- or finance on your own? No, I did finance on my own for a while, and then I started running the hedge fund. Okay, it turned into a huge uh, operation. And tell me about that. Well, it, we uh, invested in the market, and our specialty was uh, selling. Calls and puts. Calls are when you expect a company's stock to go up. Puts when you expect it to go down. So, you know, bullish or bearish. And we would sell the options rather than buying them. Uh, 95, 96% of all options expire worthless. They're timed. You have 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, whatever the option term is, to for them to either hit or miss. And over 90% of them missed and expired worthless. So I kind of got on the house side and and we sold mostly puts for the main part. Okay. And so that turned out to be not a great decision. Well, because of where it ended up uh, in 2008, when the stock market crashed, uh, we were, we had sold a lot of puts and it ruined us. Yeah, it just ruined you financially then? Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. Well, you were um, incarcerated from 2015 to 2019? Yes. Uh, they, when the my hedge funds went down, the government said I didn't report the losses in an expedient manner. And so they convicted me of that, and I surrendered to the Federal Bureau of Prisons in March of 2015. Well, Jim, tell me a little bit about that experience. First of all, um, just when it starts to come apart at the seams and you know something's going to happen, what is that emotion like? It's gut-wrenching. It's like there's a big hole in your soul that just can't be filled, Uh I guess one of the worst days of my life was when the judge pounded the gavel and said guilty mm-hmm. and said he would sentence me to five years, which turned into four because of good behavior. But it was a gut wrench. And I've been in church all of my life and never gotten in trouble, never gotten even speeding tickets. And this just absolutely uh, tore me and my family up. Uh, I felt worse for my wife and kids than, than for me. They had to live with it and they had to bear the consequences of my decisions. Yeah. Yeah. So what was the experience like in prison? Give me kind of a picture of what your days looked like. 24-7 zoo. Uh, they, the guards would tell us when we could get up, what we could eat, when we could eat, when to take our medications, uh, when we could watch TV. When we had to go to bed, they controlled our lives. It's a tremendous loss of liberty, which is designed to be. Uh, but that was the main thing. And then the 
environment there was total chaos. Uh, people would scream, uh, cuss, holler, uh, fight, and, and there would be deaths 24-7. A lot of the people I was with, including some of my cellmates, died while I was their cellmate. And that is, and there was very little compassion in prison. How, what do you mean several of them died? I mean, how did they die? I was in a medical facility, and uh, I had some medical issues, and we were on a floor where we called it the uh, carryout floor. They didn't expect us to live. So a lot wow. of them died while I was there, and they were carried out. Um, but that didn't stop. Uh, I expected I was a white cop, but I expected to be housed with other white collar criminals. And that didn't happen. Uh, my first day there, I pulled my wheelchair up to the table and there, there was only a spot available. The guy to my left, um, actually the one to my right, had killed his girlfriend and then cut her up. The guy across the table from me had shot a policeman. And the guy to my left had a uh, too close of a relationship with his German shepherd and his dogs. Those are the kind of people that I got thrust in on. And, and it was an experience. I'd never been around uh, hardcore criminals before. And Why weren't you put in a white collar facility? Uh, because of my medical issues, they only have a few medical facilities in the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And they can't afford to have it segregated to white collar and others. Okay. When I went to the, uh, I started out for two months in a uh, camp, which is considered white collar, except you get the people less than 10 years and they could have been convicted of anything. So it, it wasn't, there are no white collar facilities in federal prison. Um, so what is it what is it like when you pull up to that table and you discover um, the magnitude of the crimes that your um, fellow inmates had had committed? What is that? I, I just imagine that being so intimidating and so overwhelming. It is. But in prison, one cannot show weakness. Uh, it's like wolves. The, the other inmates will prey on weakness. Uh, prison is full of gangs. They had MS-13, they had white supremacists. Every clique had a gang, and most people belonged to one gang or another. I never joined a gang and had no inclination to join any. Um, for the most part, I stayed to myself and tried to write books and read books. I read over 600 books actually over 650 books in the four years I was there. Plus I wrote over 50 uh, stories, both novels and short stories. But how did was, you, how did you stay safe with not being involved in a gang or having a group to kind of get, have your, have your protection at heart? Standing up against the people who tried to bully and there are plenty of bullies in prison and have to show strength and I showed strength when I first got there. I'm not a small fella uh, and I'm not a weak fella. So when I showed strength and stood up against them, they backed down and still 
had a few instances where it wasn't pleasant, but uh, we got through them and we made it through and it uh, turned out to be an opportunity rather than an obstacle. Mm. How did your family uh, sustain and hold it together while you were in prison? That was the worst part. Um, I had two uh, adult sons and they had to hear about me going to prison and that was tough on them. But it was the toughest on my wife. We lost everything. When I went into surrender to the prison, the only thing I owned were the clothes I wore in. And it was real tough on her. She had to go back to work for the first time in over 30 years. And she had become accustomed to being a a stay-at-home mom. And so it was a tremendous adjustment for her. And, of course, she didn't have much money to live on. My brother helped us out. Uh, He provided a house for her to live in and gave her a car for her to drive around. I'll be forever grateful to him for that. Wow. Wow. And I mean, without family, sometimes getting through those times is impossible. Wouldn't have happened without my brother's help and my sister helped too, but my brother really stepped up to the plate. Yeah. So how did you deal with the trauma of incarceration? Because that's a very traumatic experience. How did you process all of that? Well, if it wouldn't have been for my faith, I wouldn't have been able to. Uh, I am a, have a deep faith in God, and, and I trusted Him to get me through every day. And I just took it one day at a time. Uh, there yeah. were plenty of times when I didn't think I would make it home. In fact, the doctor told me at one point that I had less than a, a week to live. So just took it one day at a time. And here you are. Yeah. Yeah. So um, with, did you find other people uh, inside that um, were able to uh, have some kind of familiarity or camaraderie with you around faith? Yes. Uh, we had a, uh, a minister come in on Sundays and lead a uh, uh, service. And there were probably two dozen people who went to that out of 1,700 mm-hmm. at the prison. So, but it was nice. And uh, I ended up with a room, a cellmate that was tremendously faithful and had a great trust in God. And he and I, that, that was uh, a pleasant experience. I had others that weren't so pleasant. I had no choice or voice in who my cellmates were and when they got changed out or even which cell I was in. They moved me around a few times and uh, I had no choice in it. So it turned out well that my last one was a great uh, cellmate. The one before him was a white supremacist with totally different views than I have. Mm. Mm. Wow. Wow. So um, now you are a full-time author. What kind of books do you like to write? 
I write murder mysteries. I got uh, interested in them when I went to prison and started reading the James Patterson and um, Sue Grafton and Paul Baducci and those guys. Uh-huh. Uh, I had a lot of time on my hands and I didn't want to get involved in some of the things that were going on in prison. So I began writing. We didn't have a computer. We didn't have a typewriter. All I had was pens and paper. And so every day I would spend three or four hours just, just writing on those pens, on those pads. And I ended up with uh, almost 60 novels and short stories that I was able to bring home. And now I'm in the process of transposing them. Wow. So, so how do you go from, um, white collar finance to that creative part of your brain? Well, how did you access that? It's tough for me as an engineer, you know, we like everything structured, right? <laughs> I found out that I'm not good at structuring when I write, I'm a pantser, which means I just kind of go with the flow. And I start with a vague idea of a opening scene and a couple of characters and I start writing that, and then I let the characters tell the story, and they take it to places I didn't think of when I started this story. And it's kind of fun because it's a mystery to me. I don't know how it's going to end when I started. And uh, it's really fun. That is fun. So what do you like like about writing? Well, I like to create something out of nothing. And I enjoy giving others pleasure. And I hope that when my grandkids get old enough to read, that they will uh, read some of my books. My wife's not a big reader, so she doesn't she could care less about what I write. <laughs> uh, but I want to leave something behind that will inspire people. And I hope that that's why I like doing these uh, chats. I can tell the story behind the story and hopefully it will inspire people that if I can do it in a world of chaos, if I can find time to write and, and be productive, I hear a lot of stories about people just can't get uh, over the everyday hurdles of writing that there's too much to do. There's too many distractions. There's too this, too that. And None of that can compare to what I was in. Right. Prison has to be the worst place in the world to try to concentrate and to try to write. Um, people steal your stuff. They they come in and disturb you at any time. The guards come in and disturb you. And sometimes they took away my pads. And wow. So um, yeah, that's just. That's just something to, you're right. Creating something out of nothing is, um, is a gift, uh, both to yourself and to others. Yeah. And I hope people will see this and, and they'll see the obstacles that they face in life. And it can be finances or health or family or job or, or depression or whatever. And they can turn that into an opportunity rather than an obstacle. And that's yes. what I to accomplish. Yes, absolutely. Do you have a favorite book? Uh, I love John Grisham. Uh, I think he, he writes good stories. James Patterson writes good stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, of all the authors, I think I like Sue Grafton the best. 
she had a uh, way of making a book kind of humorous without being outright funny. Yeah. It's a pleasant read, and she did a great job doing that. Uh, It was a shame that she passed. Yeah, absolutely. What is your favorite of your books? My first one, uh, Murder in the Chapalaya. Uh, And I guess because it's my first, it's my favorite. It was the first one released after I got out of prison. And um, it, it encapsulates the way I like a story to go. It has a good bit of humor in it. It has a good bit of action. It has a good bit of mystery. And I like all of those ingredients, you know, like making the good gumbo. You need all the ingredients. <laughs> so it's got to be a little bit spicy and, uh, and very tasteful. Yes. So how do people find out about your books or how do they find you? Are you on Amazon? Where are you at? We're on Amazon and probably every other ebook outlet in the, in the world. We're in a lot of physical stores. Uh, they can go to my website, which is uh, jimreilly.net, and they can find all the books that I've written, those that have been published and those yet to be published, and they can find me there. Okay. Uh, I also have a prominent Facebook page. Just search Jim Riley on Facebook, and you'll see my page, and I do a lot of posting on Facebook. Have you ever thought about doing a memoir? I have, but I'm not sure it would be interesting enough. Mm. You know, I look at people like you who have accomplished so much, and so far, I'm not there yet. I'm working on it, but I'm not there. Well, I look at people like you and I think you're an overcomer of obstacles and people need to hear those, those positive messages. So thank you. I appreciate that. Well, Jim, it has been my pleasure and honor to be able to speak with you today. And I wish you the very best in uh, your books and your publishing. And um, we will put all your information in the show notes so people can find you. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jill. I really appreciate it. And you're doing a great job. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. You can find Jill at jillreilly.com, on Facebook at jillreilly.author, 